All right. So we're in 1 Corinthians this morning. Chapter 10. This is week 9 of our trip through Corinthians. So if you remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, we talked about Paul settling a dispute over the question of can we eat meat sacrificed to idols? And I know that's a burning question for all of you this morning. It's, it's why you came here. You had one and only one question, which was, Ben, please, please enlighten me. Can I eat meat sacrificed to idols? Uh, but hopefully I showed you last time how that really does actually connect and relate to actually how you live, right? Because um, we, we can always look, at, even if we can't relate to exactly the issue Paul is addressing in the church, we can always relate to why, how he answers and why he answers the way he does, okay? And so we're kind of, we're still, that's the context of what we're looking at this morning because he continues to talk about this. Um, uh, if you remember when he talked about basically saying, like, you have the right to eat the meat, but should you, Right? Don't cause your brother to stumble. The question was, the, the, the correct question would have been, what's the most loving thing for me to do? Not what do I have a right to do? Like I may be a, like kind of lawfully, even before God, be able to eat this meat, but should I? Is that the most loving thing for my neighbor to do? And that's the real question. That's what Paul's getting at. Well, he's going to bring up in this section that there's a second question we should be asking. And that second question is, what gives God the most glory? Everything I do should give glory to God. So that's another measurement for how we act. One is one question is, what's the most loving thing to do for my neighbor? The second question is, and not less important question, is what gives the most glory to God? And that's kind of how we navigate these really complicated issues in our culture, right? So that's what chapter 10 is going to be about. So let's look at the first 13 verses. And uh, if some of this won't make any sense when we first read it, if you don't know the stories that he's referring to, but I'll explain it in a second, all right? So he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud, not like the Google cloud, but he's talking about an actual cloud, okay? And all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual milk. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. A better translation of that would be something close to an orgy, right? The word play there is it's very nice <laughs> compared to what story he's talking about. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks 
that he or she stands, take heed lest you fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. All right, so in that first little section, if you were totally lost, like what's he talking about, a cloud and spiritual food and rocks and whatnot, like what in the world is he on about? Um, he's speaking some kind of other language, right? No, he's referring to some specific stories in the Old Testament, okay, that they, that who, the people he was writing to would have been familiar with, okay, which is why he doesn't go into more detail. He's just giving like little hints that, oh, I know what story you're talking about. You're talking about when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea on dry land, right? You're talking about the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that that was God's kind of a theophany of God that we could follow and he would lead us to the right place, right? He's referencing these stories in the Old Testament. Each one of them serves as a formative model for what to do and what not to do. He says they were great they, and, and they, they kind of, uh, they did some amazing things. I mean, the idea of like Moses putting his staff down in the water and the sea parting and walking across on dry land is kind of amazing. I don't know about you, but that's not something that I do every day. That's a rare occasion in my life, right? Parting water and all those things. But what does he say about them in hindsight? He says, don't be like them because they were idolaters. And he gives you a list. So first he references the Israelites following the cloud by day, the pillar by night, the crossing of the Red Sea, eating manna in the desert, drinking water from the rock that Moses struck. But they also, on the other side of that, engaged in idolatry, got drunk and participated in sexual licentiousness and grumbled. I love that grumbling is in the same category as basically having like demonic orgies. Um, don't grumble. It's kind of a big deal. Isn't that interesting? So there, this is, he's looking back at these people saying they're a model of what to do and what not to do. And he says here in verses 12 to 13, kind of at the end of that little section, he says, he captures the essence of the point of this passage, and he says, I'm going to give you a different translation from um, Anthony Thistleton's commentary. It says, so then whoever thinks that he or she is standing fast, watch out lest you fall. No temptation has fastened upon you except what is part and parcel of being human. Sorry, your sin's not special. Now, God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your powers, but he will make an exit path alongside the temptation. His purpose in this for you is for you to bear up under it. So the point here is not that it's wrong to have confidence in your salvation. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the question here is, what is your confidence in? You're surrounded by temptation in this crazy world. It's not any crazier now than it was for Corinth. The temptations might be slightly different, slightly, but the, it's just as strong. And apparently the Corinthians are walking around thinking, well, I know all these things about God. And I know in reference to idols, I know that this idol is nothing. There's no such thing as a false god. There's only one god, and these idols are nothing. Paul says it several times. These idols are nothing. And I know this, so I can, I can go to the temple. 
while they're sacrifice, making sacrifices to these false gods, and I can participate because I don't actually believe any of this stuff is real. And he says, be careful. Your confidence in yourself to stand next to temptation and not fall is foolish. Take heed lest you fall. The emphasis is on what your confidence is in, and that's still true for us right now today. Is your confidence in your ability to stand up to temptation, or is your confidence in him to provide a way out? Confidence in your own strength of will to resist temptation always leads to a casual attitude about sin. When you think you've got this, then when temptation comes, you don't, you don't run from it. You don't flee. You don't go, ah, I'm about to fall. Run. You kind of go, I can hang out here. It's cool. I'm all right. It's right next to me, but that's fine. I got this. And you become casual. And then you get snared and you fall. I won't ask for a show of hands because I know every single one of us in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about. We've all been there. We've been bitten by our own self-confidence. Without the way of escape, you will fall every time. If he does not give you a way of escape, you will fall. You will give in. You will sin. You will blow up your life. If you have not yet blown up your life, and I know some of you have, so don't feel bad. But if you have not yet blown up your life, it is a miracle. It is by the grace of God alone. It is not you. It is not you and your awesome willpower that you have managed to get this far without blowing up your life and giving in to horrible temptation. You will fall every time. Any resistance in you to temptation, any escape that you happen to find, any freedom you have from bondage to sin is by the grace of God alone, not you. It's not the strength of your belief, the accuracy of your theology, the fervency of your prayer, or the greatness of your confidence that preserves you in Christ. It is the will of Christ alone that preserves you. That's it. Minute by minute, second by second, day by day, year by year, the thing that makes you causes you to remain a Christian, to remain faithful, is the will of Christ, not you. You are desperately dependent on him every second to just be a Christian. Not only, never mind breathing, <laughs> but just to remain, have any faith in him or faithfulness or fruitfulness in your life, it is him and him alone. You are in a desperate position every second. This is what Paul is trying to get across. Is that they've become casual. They've t treated sin and these, this idolatry that happens to be this, the subject of the minute. But they've treated all these things in the world that are so dangerous and so tempting and they're being casual with it because they're confident in themselves and in their knowledge their accurate theology, by the way. They're not wrong. Idols are nothing. But their casualness, and Paul's going like, you don't understand how desperate you are. <laughs> and how close, the closer you get to the fire, the more danger you're in. So grace cuts both ways here, right? You have a way of escape, but you also have no excuse. You're like, yay, way of escape. Ah, oh, that means if I don't take it, 
It's on me. No one can claim a special temptation. Nobody. It's always the first thing that comes out of your heart when you fall into sin. Well, you don't understand what it was like. You don't understand. Kids always say that. But I know I punched him in the nose, but you don't understand how mad he made me. Right? It was special. It was a special temptation. And Paul says, no, you have suffered no temptation that is not common to all of mankind. Nothing. I don't care what you've done or what your temptation is. It's not special. Don't elevate it above the cross. Don't do that. It's a lie. The ultimate promise here is that God will keep you until the end. God will be faithful to help you to bear up under your temptations. That's the promise. So there's a warning. Don't be casual. Don't have confidence in yourself. Don't get near this stuff. You're being way too laissez-faire about this stuff you're participating in. But if you trust in him, he'll be faithful to sustain you so that you can bear up under temptation. It's good news. Let's move on. Verses 14 to 22, he's going to speak specifically to the idle question here. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Don't hang around it. Don't be next to it. Don't be near it. Flee from it. I speak as to sensible people. It's quite an assumption, but all right, thanks, Paul. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, he's talking about communion. We just took it. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? How's that for a rhetorical question? So what's he saying? He's saying, yes, the idols, these idols are nothing. These gods are false. They're not real. <clears throat> it's, it's, yeah, it's nothing. But what they don't understand what they're doing is they're offering these sacrifices to demons. That behind this these idols, there is a supernatural, spiritual, demonic force that they are messing with. And that is serious and it's real. Don't do it. Because remember we talked about, when we talked about the idol worship, there were kind of two things happening. One was they would go to the temple, this pagan temple, where they would make sacrifices to their false gods. And they would burn the meat and it would be this incense and then they would eat they would cook the rest of it, and they would have a big celebration. They would eat the meat together. All of this was essentially a worship service to pagan gods, okay? And this is how they would do their worship service. So that was one way to participate was to go and attend that demonic worship service. The other thing that would happen is the leftovers were sold very cheaply in the market. You could go, and you could buy this discount meat and eat it at home. And Paul basically says, that's okay, Maybe, depends on who you're eating with. But this thing of going to the temple, 
And going to the worship service, not cool. <laughs> not okay. There's a line there. That's what he's saying here. Behind there is a demonic force. I want to say, look, if you're not used to me, like people saying the word demon like it's real, like I warned you five minutes ago, <laughs> like if you want your Christianity without the weird, you're going to be disappointed. Because I know that's weird. But let me tell you, there's, there's real, just like there's a real God, a real Holy Spirit, real angels there's also real demons and we shouldn't do things we shouldn't want to hang out with them we shouldn't want to honor them we shouldn't what willingly or unwillingly what's interesting about this is these people who were doing this don't think they're doing what Paul says they're doing they think they're worshiping a real God that can help them with their fertility or with their crops or all these other things and Paul says the reality behind this is there's a demonic reality to it that they don't even see or not aware of. But now you are, so don't do it. So one of the things we need to say and not just skip over is don't mess around with supernatural things that you don't understand and that are not godly. Don't play around with Ouija boards. Don't go see fortune tellers. How many times have I heard somebody say to me, I went to a palm reader at the fair or whatever, and it was just fun. I don't really believe this stuff is real. I don't really believe in it. I know it's fake. I know it's not real. I just went because everybody was going and it was silly and it was funny. Doesn't that sound an awful lot <laughs> like exactly what he's saying? <laughs> like, I, it's not enough to say I don't believe in this. There's something behind it that's ungodly. So don't do it. Don't participate in it. Don't have shrines in your house to your, your loved ones. That have, don't, don't pray to your dead loved ones. There's a lot of cultures that do that. Don't do it. Aunt Susie is not going to help you, and she's not here. All right? All these sorts of things that are kind of part and parcel of our culture, including American culture, we don't just all participate in some things because we look at that and we go, you know, I know that's not real. I know there's no such thing as whatever. I don't believe in it, but there's something demonic behind it. I'm not going to do it. God says don't do it, so I'm not going to, all right? This effectively cuts this excuse off of, well, I don't really believe in this stuff. It's all fake anyway. If God says don't do it, don't do it. All right, so how many times have we said these things? Like, I know it's fake. Maybe, maybe not regarding, like, you know, fortune-telling and all that stuff, but what about other things in the culture that the culture embraces that we, that are kind of in a gray area for us? We say, I know it's fake, or watching that sort of thing doesn't affect me like it does some people. What's a cuss word anyway? I mean, can we really define... I'm just being authentic. We can't hide from the world. So I have to go to that place or watch that thing or read that thing or listen to that music or whatever it is that the culture says is great. I'm going to go do that thing because I'm trying to be real and authentic. Can't you imagine people back in the days of Corinth going to temple worship because they're trying to be a good witness? Be careful. Take heed lest you fall. 
These excuses and all the ones like them just ask the wrong question. Not only should we be, we'll be, asked, should we be asking what's most loving, that was chapters 8 and 9, but we should also be asking what's most glorifying to God. And going to the temple and participating, going through the motions of worshiping a false god doesn't bring glory to God. It does the opposite. It brings glory to the enemy. Let's read this, verses 23 through verse, chapter 11, verse 1. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's love. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers, check this out, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, and do not eat it, for the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So verses 23 to 30, you'll recognize he's basically repeating his argument from, the last, from last week. That's the basic idea of chapters 8 through 9. What's new here is do all to the glory of God. No matter what you decide to eat or drink, not only seek to love others to the max, but also seek to glorify God to the max. And there's a lot of things in this world that we can't do and glorify God at the same time. It is a long list of things. If you can't do a thing and glorify God, then don't do that thing. Right? It's as simple as I can make it for you. Even if you're in some sense allowed to do it. Remember, the question is not, what am I free to do? What, am I, what do I have a right to do? What am I allowed to do? The question is, what has God called me to do? What's most loving and what's most glorifying to him? So this love question and the glory question gives us enormous liberty and at the same time draws boundaries that will exclude us from things that the world will embrace. This is a hard lesson. It feels like to me the older I get, the easier that is which is unfortunate. When you're younger, it's like the opinions of other people holds a lot more power over you. So I want to just exhort you, like, you're a Christian. It makes you weird. That means you will never fit in. You will always be the odd man or woman out. You will always stick out like a sore thumb. You will always be strange and odd and walking a different way, thinking a different way, talking a different way, singing a different way, being different. It will always, the only way not to be that way, the only way to actually fit in in the world is to not be a Christian or to pretend like you're not one. There's just no category for that in the Bible. I don't even know how to say what to say to that. A Christian who pretends not to be one, that's just, that doesn't exist here. So imagine for a minute what this would have been like for the Christians in Corinth. Just think about it. 
you've decided, okay, you've, you've, you've had Corinthians, 1 Corinthians read to you at church. You're like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to temple anymore. And so you're sitting at home, and that day of the week comes when everybody's going to temple, and I don't know if they rung a bell or whatever or how they did that, but all of a sudden all your neighbors, everybody, everybody in town, everybody in your neighborhood, leave their house, and they're all walking to the temple, except for you and a handful of other Christians that you go to church with. Both neighbors on both sides of your house leave their house, and start walking, and there's a crowd of people. Everybody in town goes to this one place. And you hear them at the temple, and you smell the meat cooking and the smoke coming up, and you hear them cheering and doing whatever it is they do, and they're having a great time eating this lovely barbecue, having a grand old time, and you're doing what? Sitting at home feeling weird, feeling odd, feeling out of sync with the world around you. And then they all come back, and you see them walking down the street, just the whole, the whole entire neighborhood, and they've had a great time, smiles on their faces. They, they've joined together in great unity together as a community. They have bonded with a common interest and common faith. They've been encouraged. They have friends. They have a life. They have a purpose and meaning, and they're excited because, you know, their, their crops aren't going to die, and they'll be able to have children because we've pleased the gods. And there you are sitting at home, totally left out of that. And they look at you and they say, well, I missed you today. You weren't at, at temple. Where were you? Oh, I was at home. I just stayed home. Why? That's kind of weird. Like, you feeling okay? You know, did you get, get your COVID test so you could go to temple? <laughs> no, I wasn't feeling too good. I got the sniffles. How long are you going to keep up that ruse? At some point, you got to say, I can't go because I believe that you're worshiping demons. What? Are you serious? That's what you believe? What, that's the weirdest, craziest, what do you believe in, demons? I'm not worshiping demons. I don't even believe in demons. I believe in this God and that God. That's totally legit. What are you doing? You feel that feeling that we've all felt before of being misunderstood and mocked and laughed at. If you're not inducing some level of mockery, consternation, or slander, consternation is one of my favorite words. It's summed up in this face. It's like surprised befuddlement and irritation. Like you can't believe how dumb somebody is, <laughs> right? If you're not ever getting that look, like, you believe that? You actually believe all that stuff? You're not just attending church because it gives you a sense of community and connection and gives you purpose and, you know, makes you feel better, helps you get through life because everybody needs something to get through life. You actually believe even the weird stuff? Did you just say God told you not to do that? 
that's if you're never getting that look, then odds are you're living too much like the world. Or you just don't ever go into the world at all to get the look. There should be words you don't speak. There should be words you don't ever say. Not just the approved list of words that the world gives us that we're not allowed to say. Words that God says don't say. There should be movies you don't watch. When was the last time you wanted to see a movie and chose not to? There should be music you don't listen to. There should be places you don't go. There should be people you will not be friends with. There should be jokes you will not tell or laugh at. That's the hard one for me. Because some jokes are funny and horribly inappropriate and I should not laugh at them. There should be clothes you will not wear. Traditions you will not embrace, etc. There should be things you just don't do, not because you have some philosophical thing against it or because you don't have a right to, but because you have decided it's either not the most loving or I can't do that and glorify God in it. So I just won't do it. And I'm okay with people looking at me like I'm insane. How come you're not going with the flow down the street to the temple with the rest of us? If being a Christian comes at no cultural cost to you, then it is not the Christianity Christ has called us to. He promised you you would be persecuted just like him. And so if you're not at any level, it's not costing you anything in terms of how you move about in society, then something's wrong. So Paul would say, take heed lest you fall. Look, if you're struggling with, like, internet pornography, just turn off the internet. And you're like, well, I can't live without the internet. Like, people will think I'm weird. People will think, like, well, I sent you an email. Why didn't you get the email? Well, because I just don't have it. Like, this is how Christians think. <laughs> we, that's how we think. I can't, that's, I can't get that close to that thing without stumbling, so I'd rather just not have it. I mean, I know that's radical and crazy. But this is how Paul is calling them to think, is to not have confidence in themselves, but have confidence in Christ that he gives us a way out. Amen? So I'd like to take a minute. Um, I feel like sometimes with these kind of messages, we just move on too fast. <laughs> and just you know, jump to a song and jump out the door and go, that was nice. When's lunch? So I just want to take a minute and let us, let the Holy Spirit work on us. I know he's been working on me. And so I'm just sharing the love. Sharing it with every minute I can. We can all just stew in it. So I just want to take a minute just to be quiet. And wherever, just ask the Holy Spirit, this is one of the things he loves to do, is he loves to just kind of bring correction and say, I'm not, I'm not pleased with this. Well, at the conference we were at last week, the, one of the main takeaways I came up with was this one phrase, which is, obedience is God's love language. Obedience doesn't make God love you. He loves you even when you disobey. But if you want to know what really makes him happy 
makes him feel loved, if I can put it that way, is your obedience. And so what the Holy Spirit will do is he'll say, you're not obeying God in this, this way. Like, you know he's been asking you not to go there or do that, say that, think that way, whatever it is. And he, he'll come to you and say, he won't say, God doesn't love you because you do that. What he'll say is, don't you love God? Let's just do what he says. Let's do it. So I want to give us a minute. So you just ask that question of the Holy Spirit. Because it's easy. You can make a list that's overwhelming of all the things you're doing wrong. But let him lead you to specific things he wants to talk to you about. And then I'll, I'll give you some time and then I'll pray for you. So first of all, I just, um, I do, I really feel like there's some people here that have dabbled and has maybe even been a habit of kind of dabbling in witchcrafty things. <laughs> Not like, you, you wouldn't say like you're into Satanism or something like that. It's just those little fringe things that you kind of go, I don't really believe in it. It's just fun. That kind of thing. And you've never even really thought about it as something that maybe God's not pleased with. And now you're sitting there like, oh, I'm kind of freaked out by this. <laughs> like now that you're saying there's something real behind that. So I just want to, I want to pray for you. And here's what I want you to do. I just want you to just tell God you're sorry. Simple. God, I'm sorry for that. I was ignorant and it was a mistake and I'm sorry and ask him to forgive you. And I just want to pray that the Holy Spirit will come and just wash you clean and kind of undo that, that agreement you made. All right, so God, I just ask you right now, God, would you, for anyone in that position, God, you are almighty and you are all holy. There's no contest between you and the devil. There's no competition. There's no war between you and him. The war has been won. You were almighty and all-powerful over every demonic force, including Satan himself. And we belong to you. We are yours. Every believer in this room belongs to Christ. Satan has no power or authority over us. So first, God, we just, I just pray for everyone, anyone here who's, who's kind of done that. And this is the first time they've kind of encountered the possibility that that was a mistake. God, I pray that you would 
just bring them to simple repentance over that. And Holy Spirit, would you come and wash them clean? Every effect of that in their life, even the sense of guilt or regret, God, would you wash them clean? God, I pray for the rest of us as, as we've been convicted of certain things that maybe we're not saying no to that we should. Like the Corinthians, there's just things in our culture that slip in that we know shouldn't be there, but we allow it because we've become confident in ourselves and casual about the temptation. God, forgive us for trusting in ourselves and not in you. For chewing on that shoe leather instead of receiving from you. So God, I pray that you would grant the way out, the way of escape for each one of us. God, where sin and temptation has infiltrated our lives, God, I pray that by your power and your strength that you would push those things back out. That we would be truly your people and that we would be identifiable by the world as different. God, help us not to be afraid of the weird. But God, the weird things that are from you, that we would embrace them. God, put to death in us the desire to fit in and be cool and to be seen as normal by the world around us. God, I pray especially for the teenagers in this church. God, where that, that temptation is so strong, I can remember the day in middle school when I was walking through the cafeteria and suddenly for the first time in my life was painfully aware of other people looking at me. And I wanted to shrink into a little ball and not be seen. And the fear of being mocked or ridiculed or just sticking out at all was huge in that moment. God, I pray for everybody in this church who is that age or in their teens, God, that, that the strength of that emotion would not overtake the power of your spirit in them. God, that you would liberate them from the need to be liked. God, that you would set them free from the temptation to alter who they are in order to fit in and not be noticed. But God, they would have eyes only for your approval. And God, that they would ask those questions, God, what is the most loving and what is most glorifying to you? God, I pray that same prayer for the rest of us in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our families, even in our families. God, that you would teach us how to live in this world and to navigate it in a way that is loving and glorifying to you. 